This is Kim, your friendly neighborhood ER nurse. I'm the host of People Are Wild, the only podcast that claims to bring medical entertainment, medutainment, on a weekly basis. I can be found on your favorite podcast listening app, iTunes, and Google Play, and you could talk to me on Twitter at People Are Wild. Warning. This podcast involves topics such as violence, sex, and mental illness. Privacy and confidentiality have been protected, with personal information removed when possible. If you ever feel unsafe or suicidal, please call your local crisis center, emergency services, or a national hotline. In the U.S., the National Suicide Prevention Lifeline is 800-273-8255. And remember, you matter. Hey, this is Kate. We've all been there. Whether we are parents, or we know parents, or we have parents, there is always that moment where we hear that sweet little voice, Mom, I don't feel so good. And we say, shit. Okay, here we go. Often, that's immediately followed up with, you're fine, put on your shoes, and go to school. Or maybe, yeah, you sure look sick, go back to bed for a couple hours. That sort of thing. Sometimes we agree that, yeah, okay, that's worth a doctor's visit because either I don't know what's going on or I know exactly what's going on, but I can't prescribe the correct antibiotics myself. And then every once in a while, it's bigger and scarier. Kids get sick. I mean, it's not fair. It's not right, but it's what they do. In my 40-some years of accumulated parenting time, I can honestly say that almost everyone I have ever encountered in the span of trying to keep my children alive, they've been wonderful. Pediatric nurses are worth their weight in titanium. Every one of them, or I guess almost every one of them. Knowing that your child is struggling And knowing that it's on you, and it's on them, and it's on luck, or your higher power, or random vagaries of the universe to keep them alive is goddamn scary. I mean, it's terrifying. There aren't words. Because we either give birth to or otherwise accumulate these children, and then, oh my god, I have to keep this alive? What are you talking about? Does it come with a manual? Shit. And so when we have other people who can look at us and say, with a straight face and mean it, I got this. I can help you. I will keep this thing alive. Go take a nap. Go for a walk. Grab a meal. Like, that's amazing, you guys. And I've only had kids get sick, like seriously unwell, like hospital level unwell, a couple of times. Two of my babies were in the NICU, the neonatal intensive care unit, for a few days. One because she went and got jaundice on me, and another because I was sick, and somehow the neonatal intensive care unit nurses recognized that I was sick before the... You know what? Let's just not go into that. The moral is, I was sick, they knew it, they took care of the baby. That was awesome. And then, otherwise... As soon as my babies were home from the hospital after birth, 
I've only had one child be in the hospital for one weekend, and yeah, I know I'm super, super lucky about that. And don't get me wrong, we've had a ton of emergency room visits because that's kids, but I mean overnight hospital visits. And during those overnight hospital visits, that was one child for one weekend. You know why? Because she got strep eye. Strep eye, dudes. Strep eye. I don't know why that bothers me so much. Like, I don't know why it's okay with me that kids get strep throat, but the idea of getting strep eye just wigs me the hell out. But it does. So do with that what you will. And at the time, this was February of this year, 2018, my husband stayed home with the other kids and I traveled in the ambulance because the emergency room hospital did not have any inpatient beds. And I stayed inpatient with my daughter. And the nurses were amazing. And they, at times, sort of, not forcibly, but they sort of, with authority, shooed me out of the room. Like, go get a meal that isn't hospital food. Go walk around and breathe some fresh air. Just take a couple of minutes break from listening to the various machines and children's voices and hushed whispers and so on. And I trusted them. I trusted them even though I knew about this case. I, I trusted them because you don't have a choice, I think. There comes a point where your brain just shuts down and it's like, look, <laughs> we are not going to go into the what ifs right now. Okay? Okay. So for those of you who kept track of my podcast and the dates, you may notice that from episode one to episode two, there's a month break. And that's because I dropped an episode and then my kid got sick and it took me a while to find my bearings again. And I don't think I was deliberately avoiding true crime so much as just that I didn't really have any bearings to begin with. But there was something to be said for needing a break from scary dark things when you realize that the scariest, darkest thing is possible and around you at all times. So I was joined this time by Bethan and Mark from the Seeing Red podcast, and they're amazing. They're so smart and so much more focused than I will ever be, so good for them. And they talked me through this case, which I was somewhat familiar with, but the horror of it is as horrific as it can be, no matter how familiar you are, I think. The perpetrator's name is Beverly Allett, and she is still alive now. And she fits into a very small population of people that I would just say are outright bad people. Not mean people doing bad things. Not misguided, not mentally ill, not confused or understandable but awful. No, no, no. She's just a bad person. And all I can hope is that she dies slowly and painfully and the sooner the better. And I never say that, you guys. You know, I never say that. So really be sure that you're up for listening to a story that involves child death and involves just torture and psychological fucked upness to the nth degree. Are you sure you really want to know? This is Ignorance Was Bliss.
Hello, my name's Mark. And my name's Bethan. And in our podcast, myself and Mark take turns to share with each other a true crime case from the UK. So today I'm going to be sharing my case with Mark and with Kate in the same format that we'd usually use. And if you're interested in hearing some more of what we do, come and listen to us over at the Seeing Red podcast. So the statistics for child deaths or sudden unexplained comas on children's wards in the UK are luckily extremely low. So the doctors at Grantham and Keveston Hospital in Lincolnshire's Special Children's Unit were confused and incredibly concerned when in early 1991, a spate of deaths occurred in children ranging in age from 17 months to 11 years old. And over the course of 59 days, a number of tragedies happened that took the figures off the charts and doctors had to face the fact that they had a killer on the wards. In less than three months in the spring of 1991, Four children lost their lives at the hands of Be- at the hands of Beverly Allett. She was known in the media as the Angel of Death, and nine other children were attacked by this woman, who they and their parents really should have been able to trust. Chillingly, she would befriend the families whilst simultaneously attempting to end the young lives of the children. And another aspect of the case that we'll be discussing is the mental disorder Munchausen syndrome by proxy. So I'd just be really interested to know, Kate, actually, have you um, ever come across this case? Have you heard about Beverly Allett in, in America? Yes. Uh, we. Uh, I don't know. I can't say we are familiar because I have sort of a twisted interest in this sort of thing. <laughs> but she's fascinating to me, and, and I'm sure that we'll come back to it. But she's known as an angel of death, but she's technically not really Um if you picture sort of the Venn diagram, the two circles uh, of overlap that might happen and one circle is angel of death and the other is Munchausen by proxy, there's a really small overlap usually. Angel of death is usually often nurses, sometimes doctors, who sort of assess their patient load and decide who sort of deserves to live or die. Sometimes because they think, look, this person is just not they're not going to have a productive life and so off with their heads and other times because they want to play a hero role i will come and rescue this person and you know here's my cape and either way they're terrible people let's let's just sort of accept that but uh, and so i hate the fact that they use angel in the title because there's nothing angelic about them yeah, I think that's really interesting because I, I suppose the latter, where you're talking about somebody who wants to play the hero, I've got a limited knowledge of Munchausen's by proxy, but I'm guessing that that is where that would be relevant, Munchausen's when somebody wants the attention and craves the attention, rather than the angel of death who is having a say on whether someone can live or die. Kind of, but almost. Okay. It, so Munchausen by proxy, so in order to be a, a successful visual quotes here, successful Munchausen by proxy perpetrator, you, your, your, your victim needs to live Mm. because otherwise you're just a plain old murderer. Yeah. They need to keep having something that you can be looking after them with, I suppose, like looking after them. They have to get right up to the brink and then you pull them back. And so that doesn't work very well for nurses because if the victim lives, the family goes home. Hmm. You know, and often they will go to a different hospital the next time. And that's exactly what you see with this case is 
she'd have her sort of try but then as soon as they're moved along the children would then make a miraculous recovery because there wasn't something that was wrong with them exactly but she would befriend certain families Mm. you know one case in particular that's horrific and she would become sort of entwined within that family and and become a source of support for the parent pardon me for the parents and that's messed up yeah right and that's that's munchausen by proxy is this this need to bask in the martyr role Mm -hmm. exactly and it's hard to do that as a professional. So here's somebody who, and we'll, I'm, I imagine that you'll speak about her early life, and so I don't want to step in there just yet. But here's someone who, this is her, and I don't want to say calling, but she really, really liked being both seen as the hero, but the ongoing needed hero, the, the a pillar for this family. And that's messed up. Like I don't have a more clinical way of it. And so that, but that, so that overlap between Munchausen by proxy and the angel of death concept is so small. Yeah. It's so, it's not something you hear of very often at all. Yeah, exactly. And this is the thing as well. She, she was, she grew up in quite a normal family. She didn't have the sort of, some sort of stereotypical background or anything like that. Her dad worked in an off-license and her mum was a school cleaner. She had two brothers, uh, two sisters and a brother, and it was just a normal family. But there was just something about her that was so different. Now, what is the difference between... I understand that she she failed to enter one school and got into another. Are you are you familiar with the... All right, say it again. I'm going to say it wrong. But is it Kestabin? In Grantham Girls School. Do you know what the difference is between a girls' school and a secondary modern school? I think it would be, generally a girls' school would be a grammar school over here. So a grammar school is still a state school, but it's better. You have to pass an entrance exam in order to get in. So um, generally that would be people from a supported background, people that are quite keen to learn, um, quite intelligent people would go to those kind of girls' schools or boys' schools. And then the normal secondary modern is your typical, we call it a state school over here, and that's just your normal high school where there's no entrance exam, anyone can go. So it's probably more diverse. Okay, because I know that she attended, so we, we would call, I think we have exactly the reverse terminology. So for here, a public school is the school that anyone can get into, and a private school, mm-hmm. uh, we have to pay a tuition, and usually you have to pass an entrance exam. Mm-hmm. And I know that she went to that sort of anybody goes school. She did not get into the pass a test and have money school Mm. i think she went to beth has just pointed it out the charles reed secondary modern school so yeah she went to you would call it the public school over here (laughs) if we refer to public school that's your private school so um it's really weird isn't it the differences but it's not confusing at all we're fine (laughs) that's cool so I'm, i'm really interested to hear about her early life so um over to you bethan um So as a teenager, she was really quite aggressive and she put loads of weight on and she would basically go to the doctors just constantly with complaints about her health. She was so convincing that one of them actually 
was convinced that she needed appendix removal surgery. And then after she'd had the surgery, her scar kept on taking too long to heal. And it was because she was just like fiddling away with it and like messing with it and not leaving it alone. That is something I really don't want to think about. Beverly Allen messing about with her wounded scar. But the <laughs> fact that the fact that somebody actually performed surgery to remove her appendix when there was nothing wrong with it, that is really telling about what a master manipulator she was. It it takes skill. She's, you know, not, I don't want to say not smart enough, but not good enough at tests to get into the one fancier school but she's good enough at tests to convince doctors to remove body parts yeah exactly and she was clever enough as well she would as soon as one doctor started getting suspicious of her she'd then move along to the next doctor and start all over again so she'd have that intuition that this person's starting to see through it um so she'd just move on again to the next person as soon as they start even as a teenager to be that Mm -hmm. Yeah, intuitive. Exactly. exactly. And she was also self-harming at this point as well, which I suppose, I guess, is not really going to be much of a surprise to anybody as well. Uh, are you are you familiar with the Gypsy Rose Blanchard case? I've I've listened to an episode or two about that case, but I can't remember. Exa- yeah, no, I do remember it. Yeah, the the daughter killed the mom in the end, didn't he? Yes. I thought and it was that case. Yeah, the mom had a rather impressive. Uh, case of Munchausen by proxy. And so, you know, I remain uh, fairly intensely conflicted about how it all worked out, how it all. Yeah. It's a really, really sort of weird case. Would you say that's the most famous American case of Munchausen's by proxy? Uh, Arguably. Yes. It's, it's, uh, it's such a rare thing to have. Yeah, absolutely. it's not just that that mothers are supposed to protect their children. It's that they sort of reflexively do. Yeah. And so it's really rare. There's a handful of, you know, more often if mothers really feel an ability to harm their children, then they feel an ability to get rid of them. And that's when you get mothers just outright killing their children. Absolutely. It's pretty rare to have this sort of, I mean, who wants to get sick? Uh, yeah, exactly. I don't. <laughs> yeah. Um, and who wants their child to have something wrong with them? Like, that's just horrible. It's not something you would want. Uh, presumably. Not in, a, not in a healthy mind. And so it no. becomes a, a, there's not a healthy mind at play. I, mm. I think that fundamentally, these people who are able to inflict this kind of pain, it's a form of physical abuse where you don't see the child as a person anymore. Mm. You know, this is an object through which you can get some attention, even if they don't realize consciously that I'm looking for attention today. Uh, but it doesn't have to be conscious. You can be supremely messed up without realizing you're supremely messed up. Yeah, exactly. And something I found really interesting research in her case is the fact that it is even more rare to find someone who has Munchausen syndrome and then also Munchausen's by proxy. So the fact that she was doing things about herself and wanting the attention by making herself perhaps making herself poorly or coming up with things and to also have that to want to do it to other people as well that's even more rare i i i struggle with the existence of the 
disorder of Munchausen syndrome alone because it has a whole lot of overlap with the concept of borderline personality disorder. Mm. Um, I don't know if you're familiar with it, but it's effectively a way of viewing the world that that is sort of extra skilled at finding the dramatic approach to any situation. Okay. And a feeling that if you think one bad thing about me, if you think one negative thing about me, then everything about me must be terrible. Mm. So their their sense of self-worth and self is very, very dependent on how other people think about them. Mm. And so very often self-harm comes from something bad happened today. Someone looked at me funny today. And so therefore I'm going to hurt or the self-harm can be about, I don't have any control over my life. I have my emotions all over the place. I'm going to hurt myself because at least I'm, I'm in control of one little thing. Yeah, sure. And so I, self-harm isn't inherently Munchausen's. And mm, I'm not convinced mm. even that her ability to pursue the medical attention for herself was Munchausen's only because it seemed to stop. When she got attention another way. Do you know what I'm saying? Like if it was true Munchausen's like a, I need to get attention for my physical symptoms. It seems like that would have continued. Mm, Rather than being replaced by getting attention from something else. I mean, that's a busy day. Mm. (laughs) You know, I mean, how do you have time to eat when you're busy just hurting everybody in your path? So, you know. Mm -hmm. Exactly. And this is the thing. She... She just was, I mean, she had relationships. She had a boyfriend when she was doing her training um, to sort of become a nurse. But she had this bizarre behavior the whole time. She'd pretended to be pregnant at one point. She was aggressive. She was manipulative. And towards the end of their relationship, which unsurprising, it's towards the end, she even accused him of rape. So she was clearly anything that could get her some attention was what she was going to do. Especially attention that was not her fault. It was she yeah. wanted pity. so she could pity. be the victim. Exactly, she wanted pity as the victim, but then she wanted it not to be about, you know, I did something wrong. It's like it, 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 what is less blameless than a health problem? Mm, absolutely, you're going to get the sympathy that you so crave, and I think this, like you say about the self harming, that's usually quite secretive. Um, whereas with her, it was, you know. Um, all about getting the attention from medical professionals and a complete obsession with that. But I'm sure, you know, you'll, you'll co- go on to cover that, Bethan. But I'm really sort of interested to know, um, you know, what she did and why she went into the background mm. that she had of nursing. Yeah, and something else that's so interesting, but you can completely understand how it would come about, is she actually, because of all these illnesses and doctor's appointments and hospital appointments, she actually failed her nursing exams. But because the hospital was so understaffed and so stretched, they gave her a, a temporary six-month contract, even though she'd had poor attendance and she failed her exams over and over. They just needed someone to work. I really hope that kind of thing wouldn't terrifying. happen now, but you just don't know, do you? <laughs> that could still happen. The fact that she failed her exams, but they're like, well, you know, you can kind of do some of it. So we're desperate. We'll take you on. That's really worrying. And obviously it had grave consequences on this occasion. Who would they tell? You know, if the hospital knows they're breaking the rules and are looking the other way, they're not going to advertise that to patients. Mm -hmm. Exactly. 
So um, this was in 1991 that she started working on the children's ward. Um, And when she started, there were only two trained nurses on the day shift and one trained nurse on the night shift. So that's how sort of quiet it was. So in February in 1991, there was a little boy called Liam Taylor who was admitted to the children's unit with a chest infection. There's different reports online of whether he was seven weeks or seven months old, but basically he was a baby. And Mm -hmm. Beverly was the nurse on duty when he was admitted. She went out of his way to make sure his parents were comfortable. And she really spent time reassuring them that their son was in capable hands. She even had persuaded them to go home, get some rest, like really making them feel like they were being looked after. So one day they'd gone home, they'd sort of had a bit of time to chill. And when they got back that evening, they were told Liam had suffered an emergency. But he was recovering fine. And Beverly then volunteered for extra night duty just so that she could watch over the boy. And his parents actually chose to stay at the hospital that night as well. And the doctors were really, really shocked when he had another respiratory attack just before midnight. It was thought he'd come through it kind of well. And then all of a sudden his condition worsened. Beverly was alone in the room with the young boy when he suddenly turned pale and he had loads of red blotches all over his face. She summoned an emergency recess team and really weirdly, the monitors that should have sounded if he'd stopped breathing were missing. The staff at the hospital were so worried about why they'd been removed, but this was like the least of their concerns because Liam had a heart attack. And despite the efforts of the medical staff, he suffered severe brain damage and he remained alive only due to the life support machines that he was on. The doctors told his parents he's had a lot of brain damage. We've done everything we can. We can keep breathing for him, but he's not going to do very well. And so therefore his parents made the agonizing decision to remove their baby from life support. And he died in his mother's arms on the 22nd of February. The cause of death was recorded as a heart failure. And they said that he died from an undiagnosed heart condition. Beverly was just never questioned in the role, in her role in his death. And the staff were really upset by the loss of the patient. And there was just sort of no way that it should have happened. And everyone seemed quite mystified by that. And I think that makes it very dangerous for sort of the whole world. Certainly her whole world is getting away with it the first time. Yeah, I think also the fact that she was so present and so involved with the parents and, you know, witnessing their grief firsthand would have just fueled the behaviour. She would have feasted upon their grief. That would have been like fuel to the fire for her. And, uh, you know, if nothing, uh, Bethan, do you do you know, um, did she have a partner at that point in time? I don't think so. No. And so. You know, that may have been the only hug she had gotten in months. Mm-hmm. You know, that's a, I, I, I don't have her, her, her lifeline stuck in my head fully, but I seemed to recall that, that she, her behavior ramped up whenever she was single. I think that's and, such a good point, Kate, to make as well, because she, yeah, she's not getting the affection anywhere else and she's unable to, to distribute distinguish between the affection that kind of genuine affection within a relationship or with family to the affection that she got from essentially strangers that are you know grief stricken so that that's a great point that you've made I really think it is and it's just it's a little touch you know it's not holding hands or you know walking into the sunset but 
it's that moment of physical contact. And, you know, and yeah, I, I, I moved to, uh, to Boston when I was 21 and I didn't know anybody in the city. And so I lived alone for almost a year and it reached a point where literally a week would go by when the only uh, noteworthy contact, either mm-hmm. eye contact or physical touch would happen on the subway. You know, yeah. when if a stranger would burst, and it wasn't like I was, you know, let's be clear, I wasn't like snuggling up to strangers on the subway, <laughs> like, but just the jolt that I would get, like that surprise mm-hmm. and that realization of, oh, this hasn't happened. And for me, the reminder was, right, I need that. And my, my now husband lived eight hours away. And so we made a point after a while of either he would come down to visit me or I would go visit him. Uh, on a regular basis because just just being in the same room with somebody that cared about me or getting a hug from somebody like that mattered yeah it, and it, i don't think she was able to make that mm-hmm. exactly it's such an important part of being a human being is the is what you know what you get from having community right just that little that moment and and i think that she was not able to do that second step they're not like, let's not pretend that I'm any genius, but I'm also not an angel of death. So, mm. you know, I was honest. I'm not. <laughs> and so I was able to recognize, like, this is something that I need and take other steps to do it. Like, I didn't sign on, you know, to to hold and or smother babies in the hospital. But it's, in her yeah, world, that was finding, okay. It's finding what's going to work best for you, isn't it? It blows my mind, though, that you guys were eight hours apart. I feel like if you drive for eight hours in the UK, you'll go off the edge of the island and go in the sea. (laughs) Well, I was just that we just, my family and I took a a trip through the UK this summer. Mm -hmm. Where did you go to? Everywhere. And everybody who is American who hears about it is like, oh, that's lovely. And everybody who is from the UK or Ireland goes, you did what? (laughs) <laughs> because we started and ended in London and in the span of two weeks we went up to Edinburgh and over to Belfast and then down to County Clare and over to Dublin and then to Cardiff and then to Devon and then back to wow, London. Wow that, that sounds amazing you've covered like pretty much Everything. the length and breadth of the UK there. Cardiff's not too far from us actually that's probably about an hour's drive something like Oh, we waved. We went by. Yes. It was beautiful. Okay. It was absolutely yeah. beautiful. Cardiff was one of my daughter's favorite cities. So I, I could see us ending back because the, the, you know, the, the goal was let's go everywhere. And now we know where we want to go back. Absolutely. Yeah. That's the right way to do it. And so for us, you know, there were there, like driving. We went the day we left Belfast, we went up to the Giants Causeway. And then down to County Clare. So that's pretty much the length of Ireland. I think we were in the car for six hours. Mm-hmm. And so my mother lives six hours away from me, and that's not far enough. <laughs> so, <laughs> so, Honestly, it's, it's crazy to us. Like we, me and Mark live about 35 minutes apart, and that seems like far. Mm-hmm. We're, just, we're just not used to that here. <laughs> And exactly, just and it wasn't for a long term stretch. It was it's about this is where I moved for grad school, and my husband had not quite finished his master's degree. Mm-hmm. So for that year that I had started mine, and he had not quite finished his, then that's what had to happen, or we had to break up. Like those were our, those were our 
our uh, challenges. And we did break up for a little while, but unfortunately, I still loved the guy, so we got back together. You know? <laughs> but um, in any case, uh, it, it, mm. she, Beverly, was not able to say, like, oh, maybe I should hook up with a new boyfriend. Yeah, it, it exactly. was. She didn't have that sensible line of thought of. You know, most of us are like, I should, I should get a new boyfriend, or I mean, they, they, there are such things as professional snugglers now. That for That's a certain creepy. amount per hour, they'll come to your house <laughs> and hug you. You know, it, it's a true thing. And I think I've I, heard of those people. Yeah, they charge decent money, and a friend of mine is no one. sexual activity involved, but it's just exactly. hugging. Yeah. Exactly. And a friend of mine is one, and she said it was quite lovely. And it's all very carefully monitored and checked and so on. So, like, most of us don't, you know, we go from point A of I don't have enough touch to point B of I have appropriate touch in some form. Beverly Mm. decided to go from I don't have enough touch to I'm going to kill a baby. Yeah, absolutely. To to feast upon the grief and the attention that it's going to bring her. Yeah, and I, and I think, think that's the. Go ahead. Oh, no, you go ahead. I think that that's exactly that she got a hug from those parents. Mm. And that's exactly it because it was literally only two weeks later when she then um, took the life of her next victim. So, two weeks from the first death, because there was a little boy in hospital who was 11. His name was Timothy Hardwick. He'd been in hospital loads of times before because he had cerebral palsy and epilepsy. And he'd had an epileptic fit at home and he was assigned to the ward, but he wasn't allowed to be left alone because he had an IV in and there was no family in the day with him. So Beverly had to sit with him. And that's just not something you think would be an issue. It's the nurse at the hospital. But then suddenly Beverly was calling for assistance and they needed another emergency resuscitation team to come in. Timothy didn't have a pulse. He was turning blue. And again the young life just couldn't be saved and there was an autopsy that was performed but there just wasn't an obvious cause of death and then the official cause of death was classed as complications due to his existing conditions so it was literally just two weeks later before she realized that she could try again but I think it's almost like a drug, isn't it? When you, you know, I've never been a drug addict, but I guess when you start to take a drug, you experience that pleasure. And then that's when the addiction comes in is when you you need that, you crave that and you need that again. And I suppose this attention was the drug and she was a drug addict. She was an attention addict. We would say attention whore. Yes. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> but, absolutely. But, Absolutely, that there was something about this that met a need for her. And rather than sort of working on, like, maybe there's a better way to meet this need. Mm-hmm. Because, I mean, any any hospital that I'm familiar with, any children's hospital, has a, we call it a NICU, a needle, neonatal ICU. Mm-hmm. And in the NICU, you need people to hold the babies. Yeah. That, that babies who are held heal better they thrive better and parents can't always be there around the clock and so she could have done that yeah exactly she could have gone into about this in so many different ways yeah and so something about this you know that's what i was saying but it's dangerous that it worked for her and she didn't get caught the first time Mm. even suspect suspected the first time because exactly then, then you repeat it And I think this is what's so chilling about this case is how long it goes on for before anybody actually takes real notice. 
she must that's must have been what kept her just trying and trying because she was getting that buzz and that mm-hmm. human contact of people either you know being grateful for her for their help or trying to comfort her because she'd lost a patient and actually she was the cause of it all it's twisted mm. so on the 3rd of march so this is not even a month later there was a one-year-old called Kaylee who was admitted to Ward 4. She had a chest infection, but she seemed to be recovering quite well. Five days after being admitted to the hospital and literally in the same bed that Liam had died in just a fortnight before, Kaylee went into cardiac arrest. Luckily, this time they were able to revive her and she was transferred to another hospital in Nottingham. When she was moved there, that's when doctors did notice some strange marks on her arm and during a thorough examination, they found an odd puncture hole under her armpit. They also discovered an air bubble near to where the puncture mark, this kind of showed up on her x-rays. They attributed this to an accidental injection and there was no investigation started up. Kaylee's life was saved, but sadly she was left disabled for the rest of her life. And her parents were even told initially that she'd never walk or talk because of the extent of those disabilities that she'd suffered. To this day, she requires the support of her parents with coping with her. She's got sort of mild learning difficulties. And she's also got a syndrome called Kabuki makeup syndrome. And she needs uh, psychiatric medication because she's so terrified that Beverly's going to strike again. She has to have someone look under her bed before she goes to sleep. That's really sad, isn't it? I mean, obviously, I know people have died, but it's equally as sad when somebody's life has been ruined psychologically and physically. And the fact that there was a puncture uh, sort of wound under her armpit and they knew that she'd been injected and just thought it was like an accidental injection. Like, what the fuck? That is just Mm -hmm. so weird. So weird. I mean, I so my my my, I have four children, which is too many, but my six year old. (laughs) Um, it, it, this past February, <clears throat> excuse me, had, uh, this is, I don't know why this bothers me so much, but she had strep eye and I don't think you should have strep there. Like I just, I would like to put that out to the universe if that's not acceptable <laughs> to me. But so she was admitted to the hospital for 48 hours for IV medication. And, you know, my husband and I effectively flipped a coin and I ended up going down with her and, I mean, I, I slept in the room with her and if I was leaving, it was only when she was asleep and I would, I would like sort of literally jog to the nearest fast food place and, and grab food and bring it back to the room as quickly mm-hmm. as I could. Yeah. You know, just because if you're there as parent, you're there. Now, we are privileged to be able to have done so. But even if I had not been there, I would have been, I feel like, I hope, I would have been checking in on what procedures were done and... I don't think I would have done a, a, a full body examination, but if another doctor said, hey, what's this puncture wound for? I think that's about the moment when I throw a temper tantrum. Yeah, you'd want to know, like, why Why was there an accidental anything? How is this possible? And did you also give her an accidental lobotomy while you were in there? Like, you yeah, know, what else has gone wrong? Where, where do we draw the line between, oh, it's no big deal, and, oh, hey, an air bubble inside a child, that might kill it? You know? Mm-hmm. It, it baffles and this me. is this is the thing. It's like she did end up getting, um, Katie did end up getting some compensation from the hospital for her injuries, but they never, ever took actual responsibility 
so she was given compensation and the family were given compensation to help around sort of her care um she was awarded two million one hundred and twenty five thousand pounds by the lincolnshire health authority but they didn't actually accept the liability that is a fucking shitload of cash though but i completely understand it because obviously uh, you know her entire life's been ruined at their own negligence even though they've not admitted that but yeah that's an awful lot of money and hopefully that has helped her family care for her as she's gone into adulthood and that's i am doing the math in my head about four million dollars u.s and yeah, it I sounds so. it sounds like a whole ton of money, but by the time you deal with, you know, idiocy like uh, taxes and and just the the amount of care, the mm, the amount of care yeah. costs in the U.S. is just I mean when I say insane, I I, I don't know mm. how to put a better word on it, but our healthcare costs are through the roof. And the problem is when you are given that sort of compensation, a lot of times you lose insurance compensation. Mm. Well, it's very, very similar. So for her, she lost a lot of her benefits. Mm -hmm. So rather than having living benefits to help her go in, the councils were saying, well, you've got this money behind you. You don't need to have these benefits as well. And her parents have had ongoing battles to try and, ensure that because that money's there to help to renovate the house to make it more livable or to do things for her they yeah they've had a lot of struggles trying to make sure that they kind of still were able to keep her and look after her in the way that they wanted to yeah it's i don't like it Mm, it is really sad so then beverly wasn't on duty when the next little child came into the hospital he was paul crampton and he had a not too serious lung infection, but it was serious enough to be in hospital. But sadly, he had not escaped because as soon as she returned to the ward and within hours of her just being alone with him, his condition got worse and he appeared to be suffering from insulin shock. He went almost into a coma and tests were showing that his blood sugar levels had soared. So whilst he recovered from this, he had the same issues again and again just before he was due to go home as well. He then had the same symptoms. The doctors were able to revive him every single time, but they just could not explain the fluctuation in his insulin levels. The third time that it had all happened, he was moved to Nottingham Hospital by ambulance. And the nurse that drove with him in the ambulance was Beverly. Again, when they got to the other hospital, he was found to have too much insulin. But luckily, he was at this other hospital and he recovered and survived. He had... 43,147 milli units of insulin in his blood which apparently is one of the highest concentrations that's ever been found crucial crucial pages in the hospital logbooks had been ripped out and suspicions now started to be raised but it wasn't really Beverly that was under suspicion because obviously the nurses are the people that you're trusting to look after your child obviously hindsight is a wonderful thing and it's easy to say that someone should have noticed I actually do think that the authorities should have noticed a pattern a lot sooner than this. I, I agree, yeah. I mean, they, there's lots of hospital records and just common sense would say that, hang on a second, every time we've got an infant death or near fatality on our ward, 
she's around. She literally is like this angel of death, always there, ever present, there to soothe the parents' agony, um, but also there, you know, shoving a syringe in, uh, you know, in order to ensure this has happened and she's got the outcome she's wanted. You know, when you said she was in the ambulance on the way uh, to him being transferred to Nottingham Hospital, she would have absolutely engineered that so that she could be there. And I just have a picture of her just you know, I don't know, just turning up in the ambulance and literally like this angel of death that kind of floats around and appears when when she's got her next victim in her sights. She, it's interesting, too, that I, I don't know if the same appeals appear, bleh, applies to all of the children, but I, I keep hearing over and over, like, this child was about to be discharged, was about to go home. And there's another sort of red flag to me, at least in retrospect, is this idea of they almost got away. They were going to leave her in her mind. Mm, yeah. And Definitely. what's the best way to prevent them from leaving her is to make sure they still need hospital care. Mm -hmm, exactly. But this is what's so bizarre is they're then moved to a different hospital. She surely would have known that that was what was going to happen. But I suppose she's still being that gratitude from the parents i don't think logic was a primary motivation for her mm, yeah or at least rationality i guess is a better word like there was some degree of logic of reasoning to here's how things work in her little world but that you know like i said we you know point a is i'm lonely point b is let's kill a baby like her her sense mm. of logic and rationality is not common i would hope yeah exactly and then this is when everything sort of really speeds up with the timeline. So the next day, there was a little boy called Bradley Gibson who was suffering from pneumonia. He went into cardiac arrest unexpectedly as well. Luckily, he was saved by the resuscitation team. But again, the blood test results showed that his insulin was too high. He suffered another heart attack before he was moved to a new hospital. The second heart attack was when he was alone with Beverly. But then after he got moved to Nottingham, he was then sort of recovered absolutely fine. And then on the 22nd of March, so two days after Paul had nearly died, the day after Bradley nearly died, there was a child called Yik Hung Chan, or otherwise known as Henry Chan. He'd been brought into hospital after a fall at home and he'd had a fractured skull. So when he went blue because of a lack of oxygen, they kind of attributed that to obviously the fact that he'd fractured his skull. Beverly raised the alarm and he was clearly in considerable distress, but he was responding really well to the oxygen. Um, and then again, when this happened again, he got transferred to Nottingham and luckily he recovered as well. So those three were very lucky. The next two children that Beverly decided to harm were twins, Katie and Becky Phillips. They were just a couple of months old and had been kept in for observation due to being born prematurely. Um, Becky was moved onto the ward because she had gastroenteritis on the 1st of April, Beverly took over Becky's care. Beverly raised an alarm a couple of days later saying that Becky appeared to be hypoglycemic and she was cold to the touch, but there really didn't seem to be anything wrong with her that any of the other medical professionals could find out. They sent the baby home with the parents, but in the night she went into convulsions. When they called a doctor out, it was just suggested she probably just had colics, so the parents kept her in their bed with them. And very sadly, she died during the night. In the autopsy, pathologists could literally find no clear like, cause of death. And they just said it was 
probably just cot death. So to it's like a preventative measure, her twin Katie was admitted to the hospital. Frustratingly, Beverly was the main nurse on the ward. So she was looking after her as well as having looked after her twin sister. And it wasn't long before she was once again summoning a recess team to come and revive the baby. She'd run out onto the corridor and was shouting cardiac arrest, cardiac arrest. And with just seconds to spare, the doctors resuscitated her. But as we're seeing over and over again, two days later, she suffered a similar attack. Her lungs had collapsed. And when she was moved to a different hospital, they discovered that five of her ribs had been broken and she'd suffered serious brain damage as a result of her oxygen deprivation. Um, I'm not really certain whether the broken ribs were from the revival attempts or if they were a separate issue. But later they found that the attacks had been caused by insulin and potassium overdoses. She was lucky that she survived, but she suffered partial paralysis, cerebral palsy and damage to her sight and damage to her And nobody still, nobody suspected Beverly. And this is one of the bits that I think Kate was kind of alluding to earlier. Katie and Becky's parents were so grateful that Beverly had saved their second child they asked her to be her godmother and knowing full well she was the cause of all this she agreed to do it yeah she that, she moved in if that you know not not a physical moved in but she yeah invaded. she seized her opportunity and went for it I think I know I don't know too much about this case actually but I do remember hearing that that she was my run again I just think it probably shows what a master manipulator Beverly was to prey on people's emotions and to get them thinking about her in the way that she wanted them to think of her so she was she was very clever as you said Kate she might not have passed the entrance exam to get into the great school but she had intelligence beyond many other people it was just all channeled in the wrong direction mm-hmm. yeah exactly yeah. i don't like her no <laughs> so over the next 15 days there were just more and more horrific incidences and luckily most of these children survived but they didn't always come away from their encounters completely unharmed Seven-year-old Matthew Davidson was brought in after he'd been accidentally wounded with an air gun. He suddenly had a heart attack, but luckily survived. However, to this day, he suffers from ADHD. Nine-month-old Christopher King and eight-month-old Christopher Peasgood were also injured by Beverly when they were under her care. Christopher King had had a stomach ailment and Christopher Peasgood had breathing problems. Both of them suffered seizures and during which their breathing had stopped and their faces had turned blue. Um, and then she turned her attentions to a seven-week-old baby called Patrick Elstone. He was the only one in the hospital. Um, he was only in the hospital because he had an ear infection, but suddenly he was found unconscious. There's a nurse who worked with Beverly called Mary Reet, and she did an interview where she talked about her experiences. And she described that incident and said. Beverly alerted me to seven-week-old Patrick Elstone. He's not breathing properly, she told me. Together, we managed to bring his breathing back by administering oxygen. I then connected an apnea monitor to him. Let me know if his situation changes, I told Alet. After a few minutes after I left the room, he stopped breathing again, but the alarm never sounded. It had been switched off. Alet raised the alarm again in her own time, and the doctors took over. Patrick was whisked off to the Queen's Medical Centre in Nottingham and made a full recovery. So even this nurse that was working at the time 
they're all kind of doing what they normally would and the alarm had been sounded and it wasn't uh, the alarm hadn't been sounded because it was turned off but even then it wasn't this major worry it was just okay that happened I don't necessarily blame the other staff, the other nurses on the ward, because we know that Beverly was taken on because they were desperate for staff. They'd rather have somebody who wasn't actually qualified to do the job than nobody at all. So I guess there were just lots of pressures on that ward and they were so busy doing the job that they didn't have chance to kind of think that's weird. They just kind of fixed the problem and moved on to the next emergency, most probably an emergency that Beverly had created again. And that's the other thing is if you think of all these different things are happening, how many other children on the ward at this point, you're probably thinking maybe another 10 or 11 other children where nothing isn't like there's nothing else happening. So you would then just have to suddenly deal with another child that needs your help. I've always wondered how many more were hurt by her that people just she didn't succeed in getting, Mm -hmm. you know, rising to that level. Yeah. The, um, when the police did start to investigate, I think they investigated something like 25 different incidents where it could have been not natural. Something crazy, large, sort of large number like that mm-hmm. in such a short time. So, and as far as the other nurses, like, mm-hmm. it doesn't, almost doesn't matter what your job is. For the most part, there's like an assumption of benevolence towards your coworkers. Mm-hmm. You know, you believe yeah. them when they tell you their name is Joe, right? And and you believe them if they say, I'm not trying to kill babies. Like, okay, cool, me too. Yeah, because you're not, so you see them as the same as you. You would hope, yeah. Mm. And this is the thing. So when the staff kind of were realizing this isn't just a virus that's going around, this isn't something strange, they'd be having conversations, talking about it in the way of, perhaps it's another parent or maybe there's someone sneaking in doing something and sneaking away Beverly would take part in these conversations she seemed to just be as concerned as everyone else and everybody was looking around for a culprit but they weren't really looking to each other the hospital bosses actually ended up bringing in staff from another ward to keep an eye on things just to see if they could see what was going on And then in April 1991, Beverly's spree was finally brought to an end. But sadly, it would take the death of one more baby before she was stopped. 15-month-old Claire had been admitted to the ward on the 22nd of April after suffering a serious asthma attack. She was put on a ventilator and she needed to have constant observation. Apparently, she was a really bubbly, sweet baby who had a nice, cheerful laugh. And the staff really kind of loved having her around them and this Mary woman who had done the interview said about what a joy she was to have to kind of look after the day before she was due to go home so again like you said just before she's due to go home while she was alone with Beverly the baby suffered cardiac arrest and had to be resuscitated she was stabilized but she was left alone with Beverly again and shortly afterwards she had another heart attack but the doctors were not able to save her And apparently Mary, the nurse, said that she'd been off work sick or she'd had something on that she wasn't at work. And when she came back, she was told about this death. And they were all just really devastated because it was such a sweet child that they all really enjoyed looking after. And that just goes to show what a difference it is between her. Beverly obviously didn't see them the same as everybody else did. They weren't people. Mm, Exactly. It was just a means to an end for her. 
you know, one one sort of signal for me that says this was not a, what we think of as an angel of death case that you, you, one of the things that they can get into if they're not trying to overtly kill people off is being on a part of the crash team, part of the the respiratory distress team or, you know, depends on the hospital mm-hmm. what they call it. But yeah. that that savior role. Because they know exactly what caused the symptoms, so it makes it really easy, and they end up looking like a genius if they can yeah, exactly. pinpoint that here's what happened to this child. And she didn't do that. No. And, and that's so that's so bizarre with this, isn't it? Yeah, that's she's not, an, you know, she was called an angel of death, I think, just because she was a nurse. Yeah, I think it was just a phrase that the media kind of used rather than actually meaning it necessarily. Mm -hmm. So there was a consultant at the hospital called Dr. Nelson Porter, and finally someone was taking notice of this. He really fought to have an investigation done. So he insisted on this inquiry into how many high, sort of the high number of cardiac arrests over the last two months. And he was really um, sort of alarmed by this. They'd performed an autopsy on baby Claire and an airborne virus was initially suspected, but nothing was found. And then they did find a high level of potassium in her blood. Because of this inquiry that Dr. Nelson Porter insisted on, they actually exhumed the baby's body. And when they finally looked into it in a little bit more detail, they found traces of lignococaine, no, lignocaine? Linocaine? I don't know how to I'm not, it. I, it's either line. It's, I'm not entirely clear. Um, mm-hmm. I can look at it, whether it's line it's, because lidocaine is a numbing agent, and so I believe linocaine is similar. Lignocaine, you know, is but mm-hmm. I'm not sure how it's pronounced. So um, when I looked at it, it said it was used during cardiac arrest on adults, but it would never be used on a baby, mm-hmm. and that's why it was surprising to find that in her system because obviously she was literally 15 months old so she shouldn't have had that so on the 2nd of may the hospital management called the police in and they had a secret meeting with detective superintendent Stuart clifton he was absolutely convinced that this was foul play apparently he sat there and he listened to them and all of their worries and their sort of findings and he really agreed with them he did some great police work and kind of started to look back at Ward for since the beginning of the new year and looked at all of the facts. He said that basically if one of these incidences is a criminal act, the rest of them probably were too. So we really need to find that one case that we can then move forward using. All of the signs appeared to point to Beverly. So she'd reported the key for the insulin refrigerator had been missing and they knew that all the cases generally the children had high levels of insulin in their blood they were trying to check all the records and that's when they realized there were missing nursing logs and those missing logbook pages were actually found at beverly's home the parents of all the victims were interviewed and a security camera was installed so the police had looked into 25 separate suspicious episodes Of these, there were 13 victims that were identified and sadly four of those had died. And the only common factor between all of these cases was the presence of Beverly Allett. And so she was arrested on the 21st of May as a person of interest. At first, she was released on bail. 
And the police really didn't want to arrest her without having sufficient evidence because it is really difficult. She's a person who's in charge of, you know, she's a nurse. She's someone you should trust. So they waited until the until November to formally charge her. She was charged with four murders, 11 attempted murders and 11 counts of causing grievous bodily harm. So this has been named as the worst tally of such crimes ever committed against children. I don't like it. No. <laughs> I don't like I it. Mean, I don't think we've had anything like this in the UK since uh, around oh. children. We've certainly had these kind of angels of death and we've had Harold Shipman, you know, that came out since. And it does remind mm. me a little bit of that because it was almost somebody just, I mean, it, you know, actually, no, it is quite different, but you know, you've got Beverly, who's the angel of death, ha- you know, Munchausen's by proxy there. Whereas you've got Harold Shipman almost making that judgment that, you know, I, I've got the power to end this person's life and I'm going to do it quietly and discreetly. Um, you know, he was a massive serial killer. But yeah, I, I don't think we've had anything mm. as bad as this since this. And that's why she's still so famous in this country mm. in particular. Yeah, exactly. That's what I'm saying. This is such a it's like having two disorders at the same time, each of which is super rare. Yeah, exactly. It's so unusual. Good. Yeah. <laughs> and this is the thing. She's just so manipulative the whole time that she's being interviewed um, or interrogated even by the police. You know, they they weren't going easy on her, but she just remained calm and cool and collected. She just denied any part in any of the attacks. She stuck to her story that she's just the caring nurse. And even her colleagues were quite surprised. So one of them had said to the police, are you sure you haven't made a mistake because Beverly had been suspended from work? The policeman reportedly replied with, listen, if you knew what we knew, you'd know that we got it right. And they then realised quite soon after that this was the truth because after Beverly had left, there were no more instances like it. The press naturally ran with the story. Like we said, they were calling her an angel of death. She was infamous across the globe and the papers were sending photographers and reporters to the hospital. They were so intrusive, however, that the nurses had to tell the children that it's a game. So we're just keeping the curtains closed because it's a game. I just thought that's like a really sad sort of side to it because, yes, it's absolutely awful. But those poor children are just in there trying to recover from things. The press are trying to see them all the time. I have to... I can't decide if it is that I admire or if I am appalled by parents who are willing and able to take their children to that hospital and keep them there after Beverly hits the headlines. That's it, exactly. Like, you know, I wonder if it's purely because you know that she's not there anymore, but I'd be asking serious questions around, you know, the management of that hospital. Exactly. Whether she's there or not, you guys missed such a big thing for such a long time. And now there are reporters, you know, hiding out in the, uh, you know, in the blanket rooms and that sort of thing, ready to leap out every time I try to take a break or get my kid a warm blanket. Like, no, no, I just, and again, that's, I know that that's privilege on my part. Like I would have the choice Hmm. to take my children somewhere else, but well. I don't know. But I, I also think, you know, when your child is ill, any normal parent is going to be really feeling that pain. And it's a very difficult set of circumstances. So, you know, you, it's hard enough as it is without having to go to a hospital that has got huge question marks hanging over how it's been run. And like you say, reporters outside. Uh, yeah, it's just not something you want at all. Um, 
no, I don't like her. I don't like, you know, I just, mm-hmm. there's so many things. I don't remember now offhand with the, the, the timeline after she was charged. How long did it take from, from charge to trial? Um, so it was, she was officially charged in the November and then the court trial and then her conviction the actual conviction was on the 28th of may 1993 so it did take quite a while to to bring it all to court and have all that evidence presented when she kept either feigning or creating sickness in herself again like Mm -hmm. suddenly now that she's not around the baby she's able to make herself sick again yeah exactly and that was one of the reasons why the trial took so long to come to court because she had all these things that meant that it had to be adjourned because she was so poorly again. And it was, it was just, she'd been doing this before, then she turned her attention to other people, and now it was going straight back on herself. Uh, yeah, and that's what I, you know, when the choice to make yourself ill is a choice of timing and method and, and you know, severity, that, to me, feels more borderline than Munchausen. Mm. Yeah, that's so interesting because they obviously did so many sort of psychiatric uh, like observations and investigations into her. Um, and I've not really seen that as something that anybody's publicly announced that they think that she had. And I don't, you know, and, and that's for me, like, I don't understand why not. Although I'm, I'm, I'm blown away that she was found... I don't. I don't know if the word the term would be not guilty by reason of insanity, but she was found appropriate to ultimately. She was found guilty, and mm-hmm. but immediately placed in Rampton, not not in a prison. Yeah, I think that before the, me. the trial came to court, she had lost about five stone by this point. She was diagnosed with anorexia. She clearly had so many different mental illnesses going on that whilst the sort of prosecution have said you know it's Munchausen syndrome and Munchausen's by proxy and that's what she's diagnosed with and this is what we're going to present to you I think that there was just so much going on and then when she was then found guilty and like you said she was sentenced and then just put straight into the secure hospital straight away the behavior continued again got worse and worse she was even hospitalized this year wasn't she um, I think she's just still in, but she was, yeah, recently because she was so. I mean, poorly. medically, yeah, yeah med- medically it, exactly. hospitalized. Mm-hmm. And a few oh. of the the parents of victims who are still suffering now are sort of like, why are we as taxpayers paying money to keep her alive on life support, or ventilation, and stuff? Because my child wasn't helped in this way, or wasn't isn't being helped so much by the state. It's quite an interesting kind of issue that they're kind of facing is justifying it almost mm. would you know if if she faced a jury yeah she did she faced a jury do you have the option in the uk of facing just a judge i don't think you have the option um is that ever something that we do in the uk i don't think it is the only time i can see it is if if there's no trial, so if you just admit your guilt and then there's no trial, there's no jury, uh, so the judge would pass sentence, uh, they would kind of weigh up all of the evidence. Um, so I think that's the only uh, the only occasion where that would happen. You, you, have, you have the choice of trial by jury or 
trial by judge and I'm blanking on the legal term now because I'm not a lawyer. And so I don't recall, but you have the option either way. And so I suppose only if you admit your guilt though. So if you say not guilty, you don't have the option. Okay. So here you, you have it mm. either way. Like you can, you oh, okay. can say not guilty, but, but just see a judge and there are pros and cons. Wow. Because on the one hand, you only have to muster the sympathy of one person. And sometimes a judge can get so far into the legal weeds, sort of, that they miss the humanity of it. That's the hope mm. of, of, the, of the person who's saying not guilty and, and accepting a judge trial only. But on the other hand, that's much, much harder to appeal in many cases. Yeah, you can't. You have no other option then, really. Right, because a lot of times people can appeal based on exactly by jury jury selection process or things like that, and um, so it's sort of a it's a gamble either way. Um, Wow, I didn't know that you could choose that. I believe that I don't know. I'd have to I'd have to talk to somebody much smarter than me. But I I feel like you don't have to. I don't. I don't even think. I think if you choose a trial by judge, you still don't have to testify if you don't want to. Mm-hmm. And that's one thing that a judge is better about about recognizing that opting not to testify is not an admission of guilt. Yeah. Um, Whereas, yeah, I, mean, I suppose a jury of your peers may think, "Well, why aren't you getting up there to talk about this?" Too right. Much? If you, you because a lot of people think if I was wrongly accused, I would get up on the stand and scream that I'm not guilty. But the reality is sometimes people don't testify because they're not very good at it. Mm, Exactly. You just might not be a good public speaker or able to coherently sort of put your point across. I don't also myself, I would not have placed her in a hospital that I don't, I think she's got mental illness, but Mm. And I don't know enough about the UK system at all. So I just if if and when this has happened in the in the US, the idea of not guilty by reason of insanity is very likely. It's a hard it's a very low bar to me that you effectively have to recognize the difference between right and wrong and have sufficient control over your actions not to do the wrong thing. And then you have to be able to sort of recognize and work with your lawyers. Be able to work with your yeah, lawyers, think, not necessarily do so. I think that's the thing with perhaps it is just a slightly different justice system, perhaps. But I think because of the fact that this wasn't logical behavior, she wasn't really, I guess she wasn't getting anything out of this. Um, she was just straight away, it was a high security facility but it's people who were detained under the mental health act they clearly felt the judge clearly felt that this was not something she was perhaps going to recover from or get better from Mm -hmm. this is clearly something that she is this mentally unstable she would never be able to be put into a general population prison and that's you know the the sort of concern here is did you so how how do i know that you knew it was wrong it's that you knew enough to Mm -hmm. hide your acts if you yeah. were self-aware enough to attempt to hide it, such as I'm going to steal the nursing logs, yeah, you know, exactly. for instance, like, that's demonstration that you know what you're doing is wrong. But I think and the thing as well, because I've got kind of the notes from what the judge said when he 
um, sentenced her. And actually, she she was sentenced to 13 concurrent life imprisonment terms. So it was a minimum sentence of 28 years and 175 days. So it was like a, a really long um, sentence. It was one of the harshest ever delivered to a woman. What he said, though, was once it's accepted that the offender was suffering from mental disorder, difficult ethical and indeed uh, physiological questions arise as to the degree to which responsibility for the offences in question should be regarded as diminished. I have found that there is an element of sadism in Miss Allett's conduct and her offending, but that sadism is itself, if not the result, a manifestation of her mental disorder, and it would be unduly simplistic to treat it the same way as I would if the offender were mentally well. So he's basically saying that this sadism itself is at least a manifestation of her mental health issues, if not a direct result of it. And that was why the judge decided that that was the case sort of for where she should be imprisoned. And, and, uh, you know, and this is a whole, a whole other episode on its own to go into the concepts of what is justice and how long does someone need to be imprisoned in order for it to continue to be just versus were overkill. And I, absolutely feel that the u.s just errs on the side of overkill every chance it gets yeah and i could see from our point of view in the uk there was probably an element of whether the mental illnesses caused the action that she took or not the fact of the matter is that she's severely mentally ill lots of conditions and they i think there probably was an element of thinking um you know, we could put her into a normal prison, but she's going to need an awful lot of help, an awful lot of medical help and attention that they're probably not equipped in a normal prison to give her. Or we could put her in a, a you know, secure hospital. Um, that might not be the fairest thing for the victims and their families, but she would definitely be be supported, I suppose. So it, like you say, it's a whole other episode because it, you know, it brings into, a, you know, a lot of ethics and certainly, you know, the judgment system that we have here and in the US. So, um, yeah, it's certainly uh, an interesting one. Beverly Allett is, for all her faults and failings and fuckery, a very, very lucky woman. I don't think she would survive general population no matter what prison she was in. And I don't even think she would survive placement in a mental health facility in the United States. I think about the one secure psychiatric long-term lock-up facility that is in Massachusetts, and I think they would rip her limb from limb and then beat her still-bleeding corpse with the removed limbs, and I wouldn't feel bad for her. And that is so not like me. Like, I am staunchly anti-death penalty, and yet I would not shed a tear for this woman she's the worst right i mean it's bad but the only upside is that she escalated so quickly and so she was caught quickly in because i think if she had full control of her faculties and if she really was able to slow it down i think she would have done a lot a lot more damage didn't you feel better before you knew that Thank you so much to Mark and Bethan for joining me. You guys did a great job of keeping me on track 
because I never stay on track. So that was pretty amazing. Also, thank you guys just for listening and for hanging in there and for my Patreon supporters in all of the things. And as an extra, thank you to T Public, who is my merch site. If you look in the show notes, you'll see a link to my specific page. And yeah, I really should update that with more designs. But when I get a new episode artwork piece thing from Emily every episode, then I kind of lose track of like, what should I put on merch and what shouldn't I? I don't care. Tee Public puts up with me anyway. And so they have a sale going on this week, the week of November 12th. And they're going to have a couple more coming up between now and Black Friday and before Christmas as well and so on. And so they are sending me a free notebook with my logo on it. And if you are interested, go ahead and buy something else, anything else at all from Public, and send me, you know, your receipt or whatever it is that you get proving that you've done so. And I will throw those names into a hat. And when I say that, I mean literally there's a hat right next to me from Isaac's Halloween costume as a magician. So I'll throw the names into there and I will draw them and somebody will end up with an extra notebook and they're really nice hardcover notebooks and I'm getting one myself. So there's that. So, you know, join in, play along. Who doesn't like free stuff? Come on, dude, you don't have to buy like the most expensive thing on the site. Just something. Help T Public out. Help me out. Help you out. Get a notebook. It's all wonderful, right? Fantastic. Also, I was named Podbean's Podcast of the Week this week. Oh my god. Like, seriously. I don't even have anything else to say about that except holy shit. Like, that's amazing. And so thank you guys so much for listening and thank you to Podbean and just thank you to all of the people and all of the things and this is crazy. And so... I think that's quite enough babbling from me, don't you? I think so. I have another episode coming out in two days, maybe, give or take. Depends on the actual time that I drop this one. But soon, within this week, that has to do with rape kits and ending the backlog. That was going to be this episode, but stuff got shuffled around because that is my life. And this is why I try not to say, here's my next episode, because I'm always wrong. But I'm confident... And Rhonda, hang in there because for sure, you're next. I promise. I promise. I never promise. I promise that the next episode will be about rape kids. So something to look forward to, maybe, I guess. I mean, if you're as twisted as I am, because trust me, it's an amazing interview. And so I'm looking forward to it. Until then, stay sane.
Annalisa Lucas from Best Forevers, a podcast for kindred spirits. I'd like to start a movement where we spend more time loving on our friends because although friends are important to us, they're often in the shadow of other relationships. So if you want to love on your friendships a little bit more, embrace friendship a little bit more, or just appreciate your friendships a little bit more, then this podcast is for you. We'll explore all the different ways friendships take place share the amazing stories of friendship, and discuss best practices for the difficulties that friends may experience. It's time to embrace friendships because without our friends, who would we be? So check out Best Forevers on iTunes, Stitcher, and all the other podcasting listening venues. And be sure to follow Best Forevers Pod on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter.